0: Can your nest egg finance the transition to a cleaner economy? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Today's program was produced with the generous support of Bank of the West. Universities, churches, pension funds, and other organizations with $14 trillion in assets have hopped on the divest-invest bandwagon. But it will take more than that to move the needle in a global economy.
1: If these emissions keep rising and causing global warming to increase, that's going to have a knock-on effect on the world economy, on communities right around the globe. And that means simply by having a a green, clean portfolio isn't going to help us with this risk unless we actually get the real economy into a green, clean economy.
0: And while we may hope that our retirement funds can help decarbonize the economy, not every country has enough energy options to use divestment as a tool.
2: I don't hear about it when I'm sitting on a panel in India. There they ask Please, can we have gas power? Gas is too expensive for us, but the coal is choking the kids.
0: On today's program, sustainable investing in a financially volatile world. How can we use our portfolios to promote the values we care about? My guests and I are joining you from our homes via the internet. All four of them are involved in managing people's money, maybe even yours. Brian Deese is global head of sustainable investing at BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager. Lori Keith is a portfolio manager with Parnassus Investments, a leader in the field of socially responsible investing, or SRI. Pratima Rangarajan is CEO of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, an investment fund backed by some of the world's largest oil companies, including BP, Chevron, and ExxonMobil. And Ann Simpson is Director of Board Governance and Strategy at CalPERS, the California Public Employees Retirement System. It's the largest pension fund in the United States with more than $300 billion in assets. With few cars on the road or planes in the air, the world is awash in oil with few buyers. Recently, oil prices hit historic lows and even briefly went negative. How does that affect the transition away from fossil fuels for institutional investors such as CalPERS?
1: We are absolutely uh, focused on the need for this transition so that we get global warming under control. If we don't do that, we're going to be facing a wave of climate emergencies, which are going to require a similar level of response. And the longer we leave it, the more difficult it is. In other words, what what we say is, you know, there's a stopping distance here. It's easier to to slow down when you can do it reasonably safely than having to slam on the brakes right before you go over a cliff. So, you know, our view of this is the way we need to work Our theory of change, if you like, is that investors like CalPERS, um, we are the, the owners, the co-owners of the companies that are producing uh, these emissions. And our fiduciary responsibility is to make sure we've got the safety and soundness in this portfolio. So we need, we request, we require these companies to bring their emissions down, uh, typically be about, about 80 to 90 percent so that um, the biggest emitters in the global economy have got to what's called net zero by 2050. And although we're dealing with an immediate emergency, we can't, because the house is on fire with one issue, we can't um, avoid paying attention to other risks, which are uh, going to undermine returns in the short, medium and long term.
0: Brian Deese, has the coronavirus crisis uh changed attention away from the longer, seemingly uh, less acute or urgent climate situation uh, for investors? The market drop is so dramatic. Has it taken attention away from climate?
3: Well, look, there's a set of um, immediate and urgent uh, fiduciary elements, particularly when you see the kind of market dislocation um, and liquidity issues that we saw um, in the month of March. But if you step back, I think for, for us, We came into this year um, and this pandemic crisis with a a view similar to what Anne uh, just described, that climate risk is investment risk. And more generally, that we were on the front edge of a a larger decadal structural shift in investor preferences that really changes changes and upends a lot of how traditional financial models and traditional financial analysis uh, assesses sustainability risk. And as we look at what's happening in the current environment, it actually gives us a very interesting test case to try to understand some of these convictions and some of these hypotheses that we've uh, that we've operated with. So, just two quick ones. One is, you know, our perspective at BlackRock has been that integrating sustainability into portfolios builds a component of resilience, uh, which means that you should see better performance in uh, risk-off uh, environments. Well, we have a we have a unique and unprecedented moment here, and what we've seen is if you look at benchmarks you know 24 or 26 uh, of the major ESG benchmarks have outperformed uh, a traditional market cap benchmark if you look at our portfolios the sustainability integrated portfolios have really held up quite uh, impressively during this crisis um, and then the other element is around you know there's been this sense of uh, if, the, if there was a severe market downturn would investors run away from sustainability uh, because they have to focus on other things and if you look at f- uh, flows into sustainable, Strategies. In fact, in the first quarter, you saw record flows um, and uh, flows uncorrelated with the kind of flight to safety and outflows in other market categories. So I think from our perspective, um, if you just look at what's happened in the market, we're we're learning interesting things, but mostly reinforcing some of our um, uh, ex-ante convictions about the ways in which integrating sustainability can actually improve a fiduciary orientation around investing. Number one. And number two, as we come out of this crisis, I believe that we are going to see key elements of sustainability rise in importance uh, for companies and for uh, governments and regulators as they grapple with the longer term implications of this uh, crisis. A lot more to say about that, but I think that uh, suffice it to say that our perspective and our conviction around the importance of sustainability coming into this crisis is reinforced by what we're seeing. And I think it's going to likely become an even more central part of the conversation going forward.
0: Lori Keith, your firm Parnassus has been uh, devoted to that idea that Brian just mentioned, that, that sort of uh, being good corporate citizens actually drives uh, excellent or perhaps superior financial results. Uh, your take on how this downturn in the market is affecting the turn toward cleaner energy, is it helping or hurting or too early to tell?
4: You know, we think there's a very structural shift. We're in an era of decarbonization right now. And we think this is a multi-decade trend uh, as companies continue to decarbonize. And we think certainly, you know, there's going to be in this immediate environment, there may be a bit of a slowdown. Certainly, we're seeing some disruptions right now, for instance, in supply chains uh, for solar panels. Uh, also, in terms of implementation of those panels, right, obviously, with everyone uh, shelter in place right now, there will be some temporary delays, but that by no means uh, impacts the long-term strategy. When we look at uh, the significant risk uh, for environmental climate change risk, we think companies, certainly at the state level, are taking very much a proactive role in pushing forward uh, renewable standards. Uh, We're starting to see that broadly uh, across many states, and certainly in Europe, they've really been on the forefront of this. So, Uh, Nothing really derails that that story. And, you know, for us as investors, you know, it's really been a source of alpha to find uh, and invest in a collection of companies that are really best in class around managing their environmental, social and certainly uh, their governance factors.
0: And alpha being additional return above additional risk. Pratima Rangarajan, uh, you were in the renewable energy business. I'm curious why you left renewables and went to go work for a group of uh, an investment fund run by uh, the largest oil companies in the world. And, and what is that fund doing? Yes,
2: I was in renewables for more than 10 years before I, uh, I took this role. I'm a big believer that renewables has revolutionized the way we decarbonize the power sector. But, you know, a few years ago, I decided to just work on climate Uh, directly. And so I started studying the data on carbon emissions, and I took home two important learnings. At that time, we had less than two decades, just like we have now in our carbon budget to stay under two degrees. Uh, And with renewables at less than 10% of the energy mix, it just seemed to me that we didn't have enough time to scale renewables to cover the rest of the 90%, not to mention the growth. So we have to work on the rest of the 90%. You know, As I told my kids, I have to stop working the chocolate chips and go work on the cookies as well. The second realization I came to is that there are substantial sources of carbon that are emitted in this world that are not about energy. And here I can just take CMAT, It's an example we all know and love. Uh, it's responsible for about 7 billion tons of uh, gigatons, billion tons of carbon dioxide every year. It would be the third largest country if it was a country. And less than half of cement emissions come from the energy piece of cement. The rest of it is really chemistry because we take carbonaceous material and make it into cement. So it actually just emits carbon dioxide. So when you look at both of those, I realized that I was really working on a small piece of the pie. I wanted to work um, on the overall climate challenge, which is the carbon challenge. So one of the, you know, the pleasures of my job is that I can just look at this from the lens of following the carbon. That's what we do in our business. We follow the carbon. Where there's carbon, it's our job to figure out, uh, to go invest in solutions to mitigate it and then figure out how to scale it up. So I'm following the carbon, Greg.
0: Ann Simpson, we have a question from Cynthia Kaufman on YouTube. How can CalPERS justify losing our money in order to engage with fossil fuel companies that are still fighting the transition to a just green economy? It sounds like she may be a CalPERS member. So, Ann Simpson, CalPERS approach.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, the question is what are you trying to do? So, at the moment, the World economy is about eighty percent dependent on fossil fuels for energy, so what we need to do is get that energy sector changed to a situation where the emissions have come down, as we said by about eighty ninety percent by twenty fifty is what we need and I do want to uh, fully agree with Pratima that uh, it's not just oil gas uh, the matter here. On the Climate Action 100 plus list, we have Heidelberg Cement, the largest cement company uh, in the private sector in the world. They're one of the companies that have committed to bring their emissions down to be in line with the Paris Agreement. But also we have utilities. We have companies like Nestle, Pepsi, um, companies with a very long supply chain in agriculture. So we need to be open and honest about where the emissions are coming from. They're coming from agriculture. They're coming from chemicals. uh, They're not just coming from the fossil fuel sector. Now, specifically on this question, so what do you do about that? Well, certainly for some investors, and Parnassus is an example, um, choosing to construct a portfolio out of other companies, that makes sense. But for us, we are still exposed to the risk of those emissions. We have nowhere to hide. If these emissions keep rising and causing global warming to increase, that's going to have a knock-on effect on the world economy, on communities right around the globe. And that means simply by having a, a green, clean portfolio isn't going to help us with this risk unless we actually get the real economy into a green, clean economy. So the reason that we've taken on the biggest emitters what we're calling the systemically important emitters is not the easy companies to deal with, is that their strategy has to align, has to line up with the Paris goals. If we don't do that, we can have a neat, tidy green portfolio and the economy can be collapsing around our ears. So our view is that obviously CalPERS is very big, but we can't do this on our own. What we've done with Climate Action 100 is team up with other investors, um, BlackRock recently joined, which we're delighted about. But the investors that we are working with now have something in the order of $40 trillion that they're responsible for. And because of that, we're starting to see big change at these companies, which are at the heart of this energy transition. Today, Shell making its announcement. But if you go to the Climate Action 100 Plus website, you'll see utilities, Uh, chemicals companies, cement companies, companies in the agricultural sector moving their strategy to be in line with Paris. And ultimately, that's what's going to protect us from this risk. I want to add one other thing quickly, um, which is that when we're thinking about climate change, we can't just think about this as um, some issue to do with uh, science and finance. We've also got to start looking at the people who are at the heart of the impact um, that climate change is bringing. So something which I think we're learning in this pandemic is to put people at the centre of what we're thinking about. So at CalPERS, we call this human capital. It's financial capital, human capital, natural capital. And in our um, engagement with companies, in our work at the SEC, we're saying that companies need to be reporting on issues like health and safety, employee engagement, uh, workforce turnover. Because if we don't take care of people in the process of this transition, we simply won't achieve the consensus from the public, the private sector, and from civil society. So, really, this is the name of the game here is change. We're too big to walk away. And even if we did walk away, we're still going to get hit uh, by what's coming down. We've, we've actually got to. Um, change the course of events. We can't sit and be the victim of the course of events. Even if we were so big, we could actually construct a portfolio that looked uh, neat and tidy and green. We've actually uh, got to be in the business of, of transition.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about using our investment portfolios for change. Coming up, Equal Opportunity, why it's important to make sure we're lifting all boats.
1: Retirement security is something that should be for everyone. We cannot have an island of comfort floating in a sea of misery.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. Sponsorship for this podcast is from the new book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, an illustrated guide on how to talk to climate deniers. Dr. John Cook, founder of the website Skeptical Science, takes us on an educational tour through the world of climate disinformation. He provides insightful and often humorous tips for debunking popular myths. Our listeners ask me all the time how to talk to climate change deniers. Now I can suggest a copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change. It's a funny and informative read for people of all ages and great preparation for those holiday dinners with your own cranky uncle. Changing people's minds is a difficult task, but identifying and preventing the spread of misinformation with proven data and scientific evidence can be just as important. Pick up your copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change today, everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit crankyuncle.com. <laughs> This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about finances and fossil fuels. My guests are Ann Simpson of CalPERS, Lori Keith of Parnassus Investments, Pratima Rangarajan of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, and Brian Deese from BlackRock. When it comes to sustainable investing, the conversation usually centers around divestment using the stick, not the carrot. Brian Deese of BlackRock believes that framework is too simplistic for a couple of reasons.
3: The first is that I think we come at this from the perspective of risk and investment risk and trying to fully understand and reflect the risks, um, that, that, that we're all talking about here into investment processes. Uh, we did announce earlier this year, uh, that on our, um, active portfolios, which means the portfolios where we have discretion, um, when we're managing a client's assets, uh, we, we did announce that um, on, on that portion, where we have discretion, that we'd be exiting all of our exposures to thermal coal producers, because that was an area where we identified that we think that the risk, the business model risk itself, is pronounced enough to warrant that. But as we look more broadly, and we look at these risks, I would I would make two points. One is, we are very focused on this, uh, this issue of transition that Anne just outlined, in two respects. The first is, trying to understand which companies and which business models today are the most well-prepared to actually navigate effectively and, in fact, um, effectively take advantage of what we believe will be an accelerated transition toward a low-carbon economy. Um, and if you, if you take that perspective, yeah, what it an- allows you to do is not look, for example, at you know, the entire energy sector or, or all companies that are involved in traditional energy, And look at them sort of monolithically but instead say some of those companies are making significant changes to their business model taking a lot of their current r d and capex and investing it in different ways and some of them are and from a risk perspective investment perspective those differences are really important when you're trying to think about which companies will actually be best positioned uh, in the future and we use that not only in terms of allocating uh, risk capital but also as ann said engaging with companies where we own uh, equity in those companies on behalf of our, uh, uh, our clients. And that, as Anne referenced, is, is connected to the work of Climate Action 100 that we are now uh, supportive of and, and partnering on. The last point I would make, though, that is connected with transition is that ultimately the pace of the global low carbon transition will be dictated by the ambition and the effectiveness of government policy globally. Um, And as somebody who spent a a lot of time working to and and, uh, getting the Paris agreement agreed to and then entered into force in 2015 and 2016, um, I think you you look at that framework and you see in it the potential for countries to increasingly increase the ambition of their national policies, their nationally determined commitments in a way that would signal long term, the long term trajectory of how the economy will decarbonize. Uh, that would then accelerate massive transformations of capital and shifting of of, of private capital. Obviously, the state of global policy is not where it needs to be. I think that we will see an acceleration, but the more that that ends up happening too late and in a uncoordinated way that doesn't provide those long-term signals, the more challenging it's going to be, uh, for capital to actually move and accelerate this process.
0: Pratima, I want to ask you, you know, the whole divestment uh, conversation focuses on publicly traded oil companies, uh, people who know the markets deeply. You know, Most of the hydrocarbon reserves are actually held by state-owned oil companies that shareholders divestment can't get at, China, Saudi Arabia, et cetera. So actually, you have a window into that world because a couple of state-owned or semi-state-owned oil companies from Brazil and China are involved in, in your Work. Uh, so tell us what window you have into the big part of the oil market that is not talked about in this whole divestment conversation. That's absolutely
2: right, Greg. I mean, I think divestment has done a good job in raising public awareness about climate challenge. And that is important. But in terms of actual climate impact, we don't really see it um, in on the emissions. And um, that's because it's not really effective divestment isn't such an effective tool where other forms of investment or other forms of capital are available. It's not a great tool when you think about nationally driven, as you said, oil companies, which is where a lot of this uh, is. And um, it covers, it looks at all fossil fuels as the same. Whereas if you really, when we need to solve real problems, we have to be contextual. And we have to look at what countries, what regions are capable of, and what they need as well. A one size fits all approach is great on paper, but in reality one cannot use the same approach in Europe as and in Africa. In Africa fifty seven percent of the population doesn't even have access to basic forms of energy. It just isn't the same story. And as Brian said and uh, Anne said, we cannot forget people in this. It has to be an equitable and a just transition. It cannot just be financial. So if you look for something that's really a much stronger, potent tool in getting to the in answering the climate challenge, I absolutely agree with Brian. It is policy. Policy can drive us to scale a lot faster, and we can actually hit the carbon challenge in the time frame we have. And the first thing there is to put a value on carbon. Two centuries of economic history tell us that we will not change behaviours unless we value uh, what we are talking about and we need a value on carbon. That's just plain and simple. And we need to put all our political will um, behind this, all our you know, economic and political. From an investor viewpoint, I think it's much more effective to do what Anne and Brian were talking about, which is work with the companies, work with entities, work with regions to reward companies that are ahead of the curve. And, uh, and that's really important. What we're seeing with the divestment uh, regime is that there are some real uh, regions of need where we have to take a much more nuanced view. And so we're making no progress Instead of making substantive progress, because all or nothing is not a very good, uh, very good option everywhere.
0: Well, let me jump in there on the political will, uh, because the, the the companies that have invested in in your fund, uh, BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil and, and some European companies are also, you know, they're, that's like an interesting technology bet. And they're trying to learn about the future and make some very interest investments that people wouldn't expect oil companies to invest in. And you talk about we need political will at the same time, those companies, with the exception of BP, which just pulled out from the American Petroleum Institute, uh, they say publicly we need a price or you say value on carbon because they don't want to get involved in you know carbon tax or cap and trade. Uh, But then they also support the American Petroleum Institute, which does everything it can and spends millions of dollars lobbying in Congress to prevent a price on carbon and to oppose legislation to do the kinds of things that they publicly support. So help us understand that there's an inside game and an outside game and and corporations are not monoliths and there's different power centers and conflicting interests. But since you mentioned political will, will the industry use its political muscle?
1: Yeah, and I, I have a comment on that too. Ian, would you like to go first? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, only because you're receiving, uh, if you like, venture capital funds. And what, what CalPERS um, uh, and BlackRock and others are doing with the companies is getting this political lobbying issue dealt with. So we're calling for, first of all, with these companies, governance overhaul. It means the board takes responsibility, we hold them accountable through our votes, but it also means lining up executive pay, the rewards with the new goals of reducing. And we we do not want shareholder money being used for lobbying purposes that undermine the commitment that these companies have made to supporting Paris. So you'll see... Uh, The companies that you've mentioned, including Shale, including BP, including others, which have agreed to review, revise, and pull out of um, trade associations. They're not not lined up to support this. But for all of those of you looking at the proxy season, you'll see there's a whole string of shareholder proposals coming to other companies, calling upon them to do the same thing. In other words, what you say and what you do with shareholder money has got to line up. So so that's one thing. The owners have got to uh, get this all in check. Secondly, I just want to flag that um, many of the investors who are involved uh, in this work also are part of an initiative called the Investor Agenda, which is being coordinated by the same investor networks like PRI, CERES, um, IIGCC in Europe, and their counterparts in Asia and Australia. What that group is doing is focusing on a whole range of issues in the policy framework which are going to make all the difference because Pratam is right. Um, This can't be done just through engagement. So our strategy at CalPERS is three parts. It's engagement, it's advocacy with policymakers, where carbon pricing, mandatory climate risk reporting are just two examples of what's on that measure. And then thirdly, integration. And that's where we take what we're learning about the transition, not just to manage risk, but also to find the opportunities. So um, you'll see even in our portfolio, we have in private markets, something like $12 billion invested very productively in the broad theme of climate solutions. So this is not just a one-way street. This transition is opening up a lot of opportunity as well.
0: If you're just joining us, we're talking at Climate One today with Brian Deese, Global Head of Sustainable Investing at BlackRock, the world's largest adjacent manager. Lori Keith, portfolio manager at Parnassus Investments, and Pratima Rangarajan, CEO of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, an investment fund backed by some of the world's largest oil companies, and Ann Simpson, director of board governance and strategy at CalPERS, the California public employees retirement system, the largest pension fund in the United States. I'd like to go to our, our lightning round and ask some true or false questions for our guests. Ann Simpson, uh, true or false, divestment from fossil fuels is a feel-good gesture that has zero financial impact on the targeted companies.
1: Well, you said it.
0: So that's a yes?
1: (laughs) (laughs) The question is, do you want to look good or do you want to roll your sleeves up and get involved in this messy business of change? I do want, for the record, though, to say that CalPERS um, several years ago did sell its holdings in companies with a majority of uh, revenues from thermal coal. However, that was after an engagement process in which we, you know, decided to keep several which were involved in the transition, but the others, we didn't see the transition opportunity. Um, so just, you know, investment right. decisions have to uh, be, be kept under close uh, attention. Thank you.
0: Thermal coal is kind of easy to get out of. Once once an industry is kind of dying, then it's then a lot of people head for the doors. Uh, Pratima, true or false, battery storage is hot and sexy. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, true or false, Ann Simpson, picking individual stocks is a fool's errand.
1: Well, a fool and his money are soon parted, as has been said. <laughs> Stock pickers have not been able to beat the market. And at our size, you know... When you're our size, you cannot, like a small investor, construct an active portfolio. Um, No, it's a fool's game.
2: Agreed.
0: Uh, True or false, Pratima. Mining lithium for batteries is a clean and sustainable enterprise. It can be, but... What lessons have we learned from history? Let's make sure that
2: BlackRock and uh, Culpers are keeping all the miners clean and making sure that they are doing this in a sustainable way for the future.
0: True or false, Ann Simpson, before you moved uh, from the UK to California, you thought everyone here wore tie-dye clothes and had flowers in their hair.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was such a disappointment. I thought I'd be tie-dyeing my suit, my daytime suit in the bath. Yeah true
0: <laughs> also for and uh, true today they are once again wearing tie-dye shirts and yeah not taking showers as often
1: <laughs> in, in california i'm sure it's all very good for, for saving water
0: there you go uh true or false brian Deese, uh pension funds have return targets that are highly unrealistic
3: I I think there's a a spectrum of pension funds, spectrum return targets, and some of them are unrealistic and some of them are probably overly conservative.
0: All righty. Thank you for getting through the the lightning round. Uh, One of the more memorable and fun parts of Climate One I do want to talk about the clean side. We've been talking about the dirty side. You know, uh, Let's talk about it's divest and invest. Lori Keith, we've seen oil companies move into renewables. I've been doing this long enough that they, it's kind of like the hokey pokey. They put one toe in, they pull it out, they put one toe in. You know, Is there a meaningful investment now as a measure of percentage of their overall capital expenditures or CapEx that fossil fuel companies are going toward cleaner energy? Or is it just kind of... Greenwashing and and, uh, and marketing—is there real money being put by fossil fuel companies to alternatives?
4: You know, as you know, investors certainly in the midcap space uh, for Pronas's midcap fund, we're not seeing that. Uh, certainly across you know many of the shale independents in North America, we're we're not seeing any movement uh, towards renewables at this point. Uh, all of the capital expenditures are really going back into the ground uh, to try to enhance recoveries in those existing shale wells. Or for additional acquisitions, Uh, and so you know, we think there's there's not there has yet to be an appetite to really shift away from fossil uh, fuel and shale development uh, by many of the players. Certainly, there are you know those one-offs, you know, internationally and some of the very large players uh, that are starting that route, uh, but we think it's going to be a long road, frankly. And you know, in the meantime, we think there's going to be significant risk uh, to many of the players, particularly you know when we're looking at commodity prices today. You know, certainly at $20 per barrel on the West Texas Intermediate uh, today's price. Uh, at that level, uh, certainly, you know, the Kansas City Fed put out a projection that 40% of energy companies in North America potentially will be bankrupt within one year at this commodity price, many of those being smaller players, but we think you know, there's very significant risk and so as an investor you know you're really having to bet on an increase in commodity price for these stocks to work, and the economics simply aren't there.
0: Pratima Lori Keith talked about the mid range companies uh, there 's you deal with like the super majors the the global giants. Uh, we have a, a question from Lala on on YouTube. Will the oil and gas companies invest more or less in clean tech in twenty and twenty one so what are you seeing? I understand that your fund is separate from the companies they, they all put some money in you't uh, it 's a separate entity, but does that trickle into larger investments uh, by the oil and gas companies and some of the clean technologies that they might discover in your fund or or learn about?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, two points. One is that the money they put in our company is separate from what they already do. So if we look at Equinor, they do offshore wind. Every one of the companies has their own portfolio of clean technologies. But if we look at
0: the... But but to be fair, it's, it's a small part of their overall expenditure, right? I mean, it's, it's 1%, 2%, I mean, of what they spend. Well,
2: there's... The, the, it is a small part, but, I, you know, when you look at what it actually takes, the capex it takes to go drilling for oil, it's not the same capex when you set up a wind farm. Right? I come from the wind side of the business. We, we just don't run so capex rich in general. Um, and I think you're going to see the changes. You're going to see the changes in the business models because that's what we need. The world is going to need it. Um, COVID is going to, I think, in some ways, increase the pace because we're going to have recovery plans. And it's always good. It's sometimes crisis makes you look at things very differently. We're not going to come back to the same place. But in terms of our fund, the billion plus dollars that we have in our fund, so the OGCI member companies do give us that as a investment capital. But in, in addition to, do, uh, to being investment capital, they also co-invest with us in some of our investments. They are, um, they actually, but more, most importantly, they are collaborators. They take our companies, our innovations, they pilot them, they test them, and they're actually deploying them at scale right now. So that's really important because we need to shorten the time for commercialization, time for impact. And then uh, when we also take on some difficult projects, that's when they become really, really important partners for us. They take it over from us. So in, in the UK, we have a carbon capture utilization and storage project. It's very ambitious. CI grew it over the last three years. And the goal is to decarbonize the entire northeast of England. And this project grew out of our, our capabilities as a small investment fund and has now been taken on by five of our member, OGCR member companies. And they're going to take it out to operation. Now this is not a typical type of project. This is really important for a couple of reasons. One is not a typical project that they would normally invest in. They're doing this in order to demonstrate that we can decarbonize industrials across an entire region. When they do this, what's the most important thing is that they will be able to transition the technologies, the resources, the knowledge they have into the industrial sector. And allow for the decarbonization of the neighboring sector. So, these are all the ways we work with them. So, yes, the impact is much broader than what we do as a fund. We're just the catalyst.
0: You're listening to a conversation about climate change and the stock market. This is Climate One. Coming up, when it comes to socially responsible investing, let the buyer beware.
4: Because there are a lot of firms that will check the box to say, we're doing environmental social governance investing but when you look behind the scenes and see what companies they're investing in most of those wouldn't even meet the standards
0: that's up next when climate one continues
5: hey climate one fans we have some exciting news we are now on patreon that means that you, as a subscriber, can get access to Climate One episodes free of ads interrupting your listening experience. For just $5 a month, your Patreon membership also gets you access to our Climate One Discord channel, where you can discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash one.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about investing for change. My guests and I are talking from our homes via the internet. I'm speaking with Pratima Rangarajan of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, Ann Simpson of the pension fund CalPERS, Brian Deese of BlackRock, and Lori Keith of Parnassus Investments. We invited our listeners to submit questions during the live stream. This one came from John, asking for help finding sustainable funds and companies. What resources are out there for the individual investor who wants to go green? Lori Keith has some suggestions.
4: First of all, I, w- I would suggest you know really looking at the spectrum of what the offerings are. Certainly, going directly to websites uh, offered by individual mutual funds, as an example, you can really get a sense what is it that they own because I think it's really important you know, as, a, as an investor to understand what are those companies that are truly being invested in? How are they disclosing, you know, for instance, their proxy policy? How are they voting as it relates to issues around climate change? Full transparency, I think, is really important. And so I would definitely encourage one to go out and look at the information that's provided on those websites, see if there is a report, uh, any sort of Shareholder sustainability reporting that is provided on an annual basis, an engagement report, see what type of engagements that firms are involved with. For us as uh, investors at Parnassus, I mean, we're very actively involved in engagement efforts uh, with a number of our our, uh, investment holdings. And we report out on what we're doing and, and what stage those engagement efforts are in. So I think that can be very helpful. But I do think it's really important to understand because there are a lot of firms that will check the box that say, we're doing environmental social governance uh, investing. But when you look behind the scenes and see what companies they're investing in, most of those wouldn't even meet the standards uh, as it relates to environmental social governance standing. So I think it's really important to understand what you own. And I would definitely recommend... Going directly to websites to, and, and look at the shareholder reports. Uh, certainly, you know, for myself, I just authored the recent quarterly report uh, that will be coming out shortly. We do that every quarter and you could read through those reports uh, and in plain English and see, you know, what the strategies are and what they're investing in. I think that's really important.
0: Sometimes they're in plain English. Another useful tool uh, is uh, fossilfreefunds.org. Really useful tool. You can plug in the ticker for any fund. And you can see that a lot of the the funds that pretend to be fossil free or low carbon, there's a lot of carbon in there. Brian Dees. Yeah, I just wanted to pick
3: up on this and say, and say something that Ann said earlier about, um, you know, we're, we're, we've learned from decades of financial research that the most important decision that an individual investor makes is actually at the portfolio construction level. And one of the things that's really exciting about the space that we're in now is whereas a decade ago, it was much more that, that actually people's choices were constrained to a limited number of sort of sustainable funds that were in one, one sector, so just equity, not fixed income. Uh, maybe uh, had, it took a lot of risk, uh, which might be appropriate for somebody who has a you know, very significant uh, risk appetite, uh, but but not build a whole portfolio. Now, there are a wealth of building block exposures, low cost, uh, straightforward that an investor can start. So I would say the other thing you could do is start, whether it's with your financial advisor or with websites like you're saying, and start at the start at the initial question. If you're building a 60 40 portfolio, portfolio, how can you think about embedding sustainability in the core of what you're doing, not just in thinking about, you know, um, having a, a satellite exposure to, you know, five percent of the of the of the money in your portfolio to go into an SRI fund? That's a really exciting change, and it, you know, we're seeing a democratization of access to underlying building blocks. Now, to your point. You need to look at what uh, below the, the headline label. You need to understand, particularly if you're getting screened funds, what they screen out. Um, you know, I would say in fairness, there is no one unified definition of fossil fuel. Every company, including, you know, renewable energy companies, cons- uses, uh, uh, consumes energy uh, of one form or another. Um, but with that said, the number of choices and the quality of products has exploded recently. And I would just encourage, think about that question when you start building your portfolio, not just when you're at the end and you say, I want to get, get some exposure to, uh, to, you know, to an SRI fund.
0: If you're just joining us, we're talking about investing in fossil fuels and cleaner forms of energy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Brian Deese, Global Head of Sustainable Investing at BlackRock, Laurie Keith, Portfolio Manager with Parnassus Investments, Pratima Rangarajan, CEO of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, an investment fund backed by some of the world's largest oil companies, and Ann Simpson, Director of Board Governance and Strategy at CalPERS, the California Public Employees Retirement System, the largest pension fund. In the United States. And as we wrap up, I'm hearing this, you know, conversation again, thinking about, you know, half of Americans don't have uh, participation in the market. And we're in a time of uh, severe economic distress where people are. Difficulty paying rent, unemployment is 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 in, is in the double digits. So I want to end and, and think about asking you something you're grateful for, and in something that maybe evoke some empathy for people who feel, frankly, excluded by this conversation we're having because they don't have access to to markets and, and retirement plans. Because so many Americans and others live paycheck to paycheck. First, let's start with Ann Simpson.
1: Yeah. No. Thank you very much. Retirement security is something that should be for everyone. We we cannot have, you know, an an island of comfort floating in a sea of misery. You know, Calpers relies for its own members, we have nearly 2 million members in uh, in our pension fund, but it's it's absolutely good for the capital markets to have this type of long-term savings. It's absolutely right for our members that they have dignity in retirement. And, and that should be something that all, all communities can rely on. It shouldn't be viewed as a privilege for a few. It's good for the economy. It's good for communities. And it's most definitely good for people in their vulnerable years. So CalPERS is a great supporter of retirement security for all. That's essential.
0: Pratima, you're, you spoke earlier about other parts of the, the world that are less energy fortunate than we are talking on this conversation. Your thoughts on kind of empathy and gratitude at this time of global economic pain?
2: Greg, I think um, COVID has, um, has shown us some of the real gaps in our society when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to a social net for people, young people, even young people or older people both parts of society are finding themselves in, in difficult times right now. There are kids out there who are not getting their meals when schools are not open, right? And, um, and there are some real parallels between what we're seeing in COVID and the climate challenge. They're both going to affect the people, at, at the, you know, at the, the difficult parts of society where, you know, things, the poorer parts of our society more They're going to affect some poorer nations more. And I think we really got to start thinking about coming out of COVID-19 as we look at our economic recovery plans, we really got to think harder about our social recovery plans and how do we transition even to this climate in a just equitable way for all. Where I hear the most about divestment, is in the halls of Imperial and Oxford and Cambridge when I'm in London. I don't hear about it when I'm sitting on a panel in India. There they ask, please, can we have gas power? Gas is too expensive for us, but the coal is choking the kids. The emissions, uh, you know, in Delhi were terrible. So it's just a, you know, I think we do have to think about, we're very privileged. And there are multiple ways of uh, multiple lenses we should be looking at the world right now. And I hope maybe COVID has has really opened our minds to some of that.
0: Brian Deese, your thoughts on that privilege at, at this moment when there's so much um, pain in the, in the economy?
3: Look, I'm enormously grateful for the uh, health of my kids uh, and uh, my partner and my family. I'm incredibly grateful and awed by the um, heroism of the frontline workers and healthcare uh, officials who are not sitting as we all are uh, in our homes, um, uh, facing challenges of our own, but are out on the front lines, helping to fight um, this uh, physical threat uh, to our lives uh, and our economy. And I'm also very aware at this moment that as Pratima says, this is these types of physical threats are accelerants. To the type of inequality that was already uh, really hitting societies within countries and between countries. And you know, um, if you live in Atlanta today, you're 15% more likely to die from coronavirus than if you live 15 miles outside in the suburbs because the local air quality in Atlanta is bad and it, it exacerbates res- respiratory diseases. As we move into the winter in the southern hemisphere and we see, this crisis extend into emerging market economies we're going to see the kind of um, disproportionate impact where you see the intersection between air quality and pandemic we know that the the intersection between climate change and disease uh, it was coronavirus here but we see the extension of vector-borne illnesses as climates change and in fact as habitats uh, and humans start to intersect with each other uh, and so as a global community we need to be much more capable of actually preparing and being in front of this. But I would say, you know, to your point about um, a gratitude and empathy, I would add to it urgency because even as we're talking about these sort of how do we get to these longer term issues, the actions that government policymakers, that uh, first responders, that, um, uh, that health professionals and then investors take in the next weeks and months will help to also reinforce whether or not we can come out of this having blunted some of the worst impacts of that or not. So I also, in addition to feeling that gratitude and the sense of connectivity to these larger challenges, I also feel a certain urgency around this, around making sure that we're doing everything we can um, to not have a, uh, the impacts of this crisis, which already will be huge even more as we move into the next phase or phases of this uh, of this epidemic.
0: Lori Keith, what gives you hope when you think about urgency? Gratitude and empathy.
4: Yeah, I would echo much of what's been said uh, so far. You know, but I think, you know, we're very fortunate. You know, I saw a journal article, a Wall Street Journal article today, you know, highlighting that only about thirty seven percent of Americans can actually work remotely. So I, I feel very fortunate that I'm one of those people that are able to continue my job, work remotely. My three children are I are are all able to continue with their distance learning. But frankly, there's a whole rest of the society that is not able to do that. And so, you know, we have essential workers really on the front line, whether it be healthcare professionals, first responders, grocery clerks, you know, many of them, you know, historically haven't really been taken care of in terms of worker pay, you know, benefits, things that are, you know, now considered very essential for our society to operate. So I think this emphasis around investing in human, human capital management, investing in employees, I think that is something, you know, as, we look to invest in companies that are going to be sustainable over multiple years, that is such a critical function. And I do feel very strongly that coming out of that, there's going to be this resurgence of, you know, making sure that companies are aligning their longer-term strategy with really investing in their talent base. Uh, that's, that's really critical. So that, that's one of my hopes uh, and certainly one of the structural shifts that I I hope comes out of this.
0: You've been listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We've been talking about sustainable investing with Lori Keith, portfolio manager with Parnassus Investments, Brian Deese, global head of sustainable investing at BlackRock, Pratima Rangarajan, CEO of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, backed by BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and others, and Ann Simpson, director of board governance and strategy at the California Public Employees Retirement System. This program was generously underwritten by Bank of the West. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review wherever you get your pods. It really does help. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.
5: Hey, Climate One fans. We've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value. Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate 1 Discord channel that allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate 1 fans and begin to build your own climate community best of all your support makes future Climate 1 episodes possible join us today at patreon.com/climate1